0: Welcome to Knot Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing in the imagination even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists, in private practice who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, MarisaGowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. Season 4, Episode 7 a re-release of Ireland's Forgotten Goddess Queen Witch. As we approach the end of the fourth season of Not Work Storytelling, it feels like the right time to revisit the very first story I wrote for the podcast. As you might've heard, this is the story that really started it for me. The voice of Mungan, the forgotten goddess queen witch named in the episode title, came to me and declared that hers was the voice of the interrupted feminine she charged me with telling the story of the guides, gods, and ancestors. In February 2022, I sat down and discussed this story with the wonderful Meg Sweeten, an Irish-American sister on her own quest to bring the ancestral magic to Turtle Island. I encourage you to listen back to Season 1, Episode 2 to hear that wonderful conversation. In this episode re-release, you'll hear the story only, and there's a reason for that. This is a Samhain story, as you'll hear. And that's one of the reasons I'm bringing it to you again, because here on November 1st, we are still very much in the heart of Samhain season. As the story says, Then on the eve of Samhain precisely, Mungin dies. So this is the death of Mungin the Banshee. Hence, Samhain is called by the rabble, Mungin's feast, for she was a witch and had magical powers while she was in flesh. Wherefore, women and the rabble make petitions to her on Samhain. When you listen in, you'll understand more about what that particular passage from the original manuscript means. There's something else that we calendar-bound folk tend to forget. The pre-Celtic people, who placed those mighty monuments and circles of stone upon the land, didn't tack a new 12-month calendar to their roundhouse walls at the start of January each year. They tracked time according to the movement of the sun. And so this festival we call Samhain, which has been woven in with the holiday of the Christian times, Halloween, wasn't pinned to a date. The last harvest, the time when the veil between the worlds was thinnest, the moment when the growing times of the year gave way to the season of darkness and the contemplation of death. Well, that happened on the day that fell between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. And this year, that falls on November 7th. So this episode can tide us through the longer Samhain passage that allows us to honor the modern celebrations of October 31st and the ancient way of marking time. I also offer this episode as a primer for what you'll hear next week. I'll be telling a brand new story that I call The Last Sovereignty Goddess. It is essentially a sequel to this story. And as you'll hear next week, I've been so inspired by all I've learned from not storytellers who've come on the show in the last two years, especially Laura Murphy and her retellings of the origins of the goddesses, Bowen, Brigid, and Danu. Hearing her tales and those of others, I realized that I had more to say about the way Mungin, the sacred queen, first emerges onto the scene. As you'll hear in this episode, Mungen is famous for being the wicked stepmother type in the tale of Nile of the Nine Hostages. But she is so very much more than that. This story gives you a version that springs directly from the late 19th century Whitley Stokes' translation of the 14th century Yellow Book of Lekin. I'm deeply grateful to the work of Geroj Okruli and his analysis in the Book of the Kayak which gave me insight into the twist in the narrative that asserts Mungan's right to the throne and questions the political machinations that were the origins of the Innail dynasty. Don't worry, you'll understand what I mean once you've heard the story. Okay, enough of this long introduction. I'm breaking my own rule of letting the story speak for itself with all these words. But next week, we'll be back to the familiar format of story first, and then that deep dive into all the ways it still resonates. For now, I'd like you to meet Mungin, Ireland's forgotten goddess, queen, witch. There was a queen, there was a king. She was not just any queen, and he was not just any king. The king, Yogi Mugmadhan, was the rightful chosen king of all Ireland. The queen, Mungin, was the fair-haired one, she was the sacred queen she was the land made flesh the sovereignty goddess come to walk amongst her people to ensure the health of the earth and all who walked swam and flew over it he was a man of his land and of his people she was a woman of the she those otherworldly folk who ruled ireland in their way from the far side of the vale from beneath the great hills Now we don't have a story of how they met or what she thought of him after their first date, but we do know this, a sovereignty goddess appeared in human form when it was time to choose the next worthy ruler. She would have chosen Yoki above all the other petty, warring kings of Ireland and set him upon the high king's throne at Tara because he was worthy of the land and its people. She chose him because she found him pleasing, and because with him she could be satisfied. So yes, we can assume they wasted no time and made no pretense about waiting till their wedding night. This royal pair, who were blessed by the great mother upon whose back the kingdom was rooted, had four fine sons, Brian, Fira, Alil, and Fergus. Now more than just a mother, more than just an envoy of the divine, Mungen was a seer. The stories have it that she had a dream of her sons becoming a pack of dogs, each different in his own way. Brian was such a great hound he was confused with a lion. Fier appeared as a fleet footed greyhound. Alil became a beagle, and finally, Fergus transformed into a black mouthed cur. These dream sons turned dogs fought viciously with one another until eventually, Brian's lion dog became the clear master. All three brothers bowed before him and offered their forever fealty. Dreams and visions were currency back then and they were respected in a way that would seem foreign to most of us nowadays. Mungin's dreams came directly from nature, from the mother of all nature from Mungfian's own divine nature. And so one might assume that was that. Royal family life would unfold according to the patterns as old as the earth itself, as old as the seasons. This story would follow the pattern of the goddess and her chosen king. This story would develop as naturally as boys and dogs and other growing things. It's true. Yoki and Mungin lived as the rightful king and queen of Tara for some time, ensuring the harvest from the fields and the peace between the people, or as much peace as there was in a land so accustomed to men making war upon her from shore to shore. There was always a limit as to what the goddess could do when her people took up sword and spear and found they could rule by strength rather than a commitment to balance. In her own divine human way, Mungen did what all goddesses do, tilting the world through the seasons, holding the harvest and making space for the frosts and drying the tears of every woman, child and elder who lost more than they had to give in the endless battles and strife. Well, sort of, but we'll get to that. Goddess blessed as he may have been, King Yoki was no more than a mortal man. One day he set his eyes upon the king of the Saxon's daughter. Some say that he fell for her because he knew their union would secure a peace with a powerful king from across the sea. Others would say that it was an early sign of the colonizer making its way into the heart of Ireland. Still others say it was merely lust because even a king chosen by the goddess of sovereignty herself can be a man corrupted by his own power who will claim a woman with a pretty face and a head of jet black curls. Yoki took Karen Kashtov to become his wife because in those days, a man, particularly a royal one, was allowed to take up with another woman even when he was already wed. Queen Mungin was a divine being born of the other world, but she had possession of a human heart and mind herself. She made this new young thing with her English rose good looks work like any kitchen girl. Karen spent much of her time carrying water from the well up the slopes of the Royal Tara Fortress. When she wasn't lugging a pail, she was lying in the king's bed. We know little of what Karen thought of her time in Tara. Whether she felt like a willing lover or an unwilling captive, we do know two things. Slavery and hostage-taking were a part of Irish culture at this time. And the stories say that Karen was terrified of Mungin. In time, there was a son born to Karen. We cannot know how she felt, whether she loved the king, whether she always felt homesick, whether King Yoki Mugmadan lived up to his name. Because that last bit, Mugmadan, it means slaveholder. The old stories do say that Karen was never given time to rest, even as her belly grew heavy. She gave birth upon the slope of the great hill of Tara in the midst of her rounds. A baby, who would be named Nile, was born right in the grass, and she left him there, in the fields, and went on with her work. The scribes tell us that it was her fear of Queen Mungin's wrath. Perhaps Karen had no interest in raising up a son of Ireland, Saxon that she was. Maybe she was an unnatural woman who didn't know how to love, or it could be that her heart was too broken by her own painful circumstances to offer care to another. Maybe she couldn't bear the thought of raising a child to be a slave. A poet, who would eventually be known as a prophet, came by. His name was Torna, and he took the baby in his arms, wrapped him in his cloak, and instantly decided that this was a very good, very important deed he took the child home to raise but only after declaring that someday this infant would grow to be king of all ireland and his descendants would rule ireland forever the sweetness was stolen from the marriage of mungin and yoki and poor karen still toiled with her endless buckets of water a decade and more passed those baby boys grew to be men when Nile learned of his esteemed parentage he came back to the castle to claim his royal rights and to elevate his mother to her noble place as a consort to the king they must have made an awkward trinity Yoki and Mungen standing beside Karen now dressed in a new royal purple mantle upon her son's command Now though you may have grown up on tales of firstborn sons inheriting the throne It was not so in ancient Ireland. The king chose his successor, and everyone had something to say about who would wear the crown. Dear listeners, I do invite you to keep that in mind as our story unfolds. Mungan had always favored Brian, and it was no secret that she assumed he would take the kingship of Tara and all of Ireland when her husband took his last one-way journey to Tiernanog and the Western Isles. Imagine how his her entire vision of the world would have been upended when this new young man appears and claims his right to a royal father, sets his own mother beside the queen, and asserts his right to inheritance. The men who wrote down this tale in their yellow book in Lechen way over in County Sligo say that Mungin was incensed. But they're the same ones who say that it was her insecure queenly jealousy that had a noble princess like Karen toiling like a lowly slave. Huh, they seem to have forgotten the meaning of the king's second name. The monks who put the story on paper would have it that the events in this story were set in motion by Mungin's petty cruelties and mad bids for control. Who's to know? Let's see what the next scenes might reveal. Now, Niall's star was on the rise. He proved himself to be an equal to those brothers who had been raised in the luxuries of the royal household. The crowd seemed to like him best. When the Druids set up challenges to determine the kingly potential of Yoki's sons, Niall always seemed to come out on top. No one was particularly happy about the state of royal affairs when the Druids sent the five young men out on a hunt. They were directed to carry only their weapons and leave all Other supplies at home. They wandered deep into the woods beyond the territory they knew so well. It was growing dark, and all five young men were tired, hungry, and thirsty. It was the thirst that drove them close to madness. At last, they reached a clearing, and there was a stout old well at its center. They rushed forth to satisfy their thirst, but a low, gravelly voice stopped them before they could cup their hands to drink. i am the guardian of this sacred well you may drink your fill and more the voice croaked but you must kiss me first stepping from the gloom was the most loathsome of loathsome hags nosed hooked to hairy chin milky eyes mossy teeth she was the stuff of young men and young women's nightmares brian stood nearest to the old woman He was accustomed to the pretty young things who hung about Tara. He'd rather die of thirst than give himself to such a wizened crone. He told her so and went off to sulk and lick his own dry lips. Picture a similar scene with the next three brothers, thirsty, arrogant lads, and an old woman who stands her ground, wrapped not in an embrace, but in a lonely passion for her work as protector of the sacred well youthful stubbornness and ancient dedication side by side. But then the youngest brother, Niall, came forward. For the fifth time, the guardian makes her offer. You can drink all that you like, but you must kiss me first. Oh, he kissed her. That old woman was transformed into a siren who would give any modern fantasy heroine a run for her money and the two didn't stop when they hit first base he had met the sovereignty goddess and she found him more than worthy in honeyed tones from her honey mouth this exquisite creature whispered that nile would soon be king and she would soon come to tara to rule beside him but now he and his brothers his less worthy certainly not king material brothers would return to tara and assure everyone that the question of secession was assured. Brian and his brothers must have hung their heads as they walked behind the newly triumphant Nile. Mungan's screams must have been heard all the way in Scotland when she learned the news. King Yoki was still healthy enough, so nothing would change immediately, except that the entire future of Ireland had just been rewritten in a way that did not suit the current queen. Again, there's a lull in this story. But surely it was even less harmonious than during the young prince's childhood. Mungen, a goddess turned queen, could presumably only be left to her anger and powerlessness. And so she turned to the last identity left to her a witch. In time, Yoki did die. As testament to her power, Mungen was able to install her brother, Krichen, on the throne, rather than see Nile assume it immediately. How a sovereignty goddess has a mortal brother is a bit of a puzzle, but if the ancient scribes were not troubled by this, let's agree not to worry about it either at this point. So while her brother held the throne, Mungen sent Brian, who she still believed was most worthy to take up the divine sovereign legacy. She sent him to Scotland to study and build his skills as a warrior and leader. He was gone for seven long years, and when Brian did return, his uncle Crichen refused to pass the kingship on to him. Now this would not do. Nile had disappeared from the scene, at least for the time being, and the queen could not stand fighting amidst her own house, amidst her own blood kin. Mungen arranged a great feast of reconciliation. She invited her sons, her brother, and all the rest of the hangers-on. Somehow, Niall and Karen's invitation was lost in the post. Sad, but say la vie. At the feast, she offered her brother her royal cup, wise to her ways. Perhaps he was of the she as well. He said, of course, but you must drink first, dear sister. And so she did. And so he did. And so they died. One sip of water to make a king, one poisoned chalice to take down, a queen, a king regent, and all the dreams of divinely blessed sovereignty. Even after Mungin's great sacrifice, Niall did end up taking his father's crown. He ruled for his own handful of years, and his descendants held that seat for more than six centuries beyond that. Those druids who declared Niall's son would hold Ireland forever were not strictly correct, but as we sit here now, I'd wager, everyone has met an O'Neill, but few have ever heard whisper of Mungin, the goddess queen witch. Now, I am merely the storyteller. It is not for me to have the last word. That is for Mungen to do. She is the one who told me to tell it straight, and so I did. Well, I stuck to the sources as much as my modern, independent, woman studies trained mind would allow. It's for Mungen to tell it true. Mungen speaks <sighs> Yes, I asked you to tell it straight. And so you did. And yes, I asked you to tell it true. And it's also true that this is actually my work to do. You could not have told them about my life before the page, before the scribes got hold of my storyline and twisted the shape of my lifeline. I had my own long life beneath the hills on that other side of the veil where the tuatha de Danann still dwell and thrive. I was one of the great goddess Danu's children. I still am. There was a time when we walked the land freely, perfectly at home in our own divine form. But times changed. The old people went and new people came, and we found a way to adapt and make do to occasionally make our way into this world to help keep the cycles of the seasons, the cycles of the moon, the cycles of birth and death and rebirth. A set of my sisters and I were called to do that magical hag to princess to queen act. I fared worse than most, as you've heard. But generally, it was rather a nice deal, this sovereignty goddess gig. Now you spoke little about the land herself, about the green of the hills, the blue of the sky, the wet of the rain, the glow of the sun, or the flow of the rivers, you all seem to think that mythology is a great bunch of she said, he said, when truly it is the story of the earth and all creation with just a few characters sprinkled in because you all seem so drawn to the drama they wreak upon the earth. And of course, your soul may wander my Ireland freely, but your feet do not. There's an absence there that no amount of words can change, but I trust you'll make it to Tara again and begin to tell the true story in time. The stories you had to work with didn't make much of our sacred land either. The scribes did lavish their attention on the ways that I overworked that pitiable scrap of a girl in hopes she'd shed that babe of hers before I could draw breath. I noticed you didn't linger on such details. I cannot pretend ignorance nor innocence. I knew everything that went on at Tara. I was the queen in every sense from the baking of bread, to the invitations, to the royal table, to the lowliest servant in the yard, none of it escaped my notice or attention. And I did despise that my husband would replace me. I did not take the form of a woman and take to living on this side of the veil to become some discarded husk, to be made a redundant old bit of baggage before my time. I stand in power as maiden, as mother, as crone, or as princess, queen, and wise woman, as I hear you tell it. But I play those parts and embody those magics on my own terms and in my own time. No man or earthly power structure is going to tell me who to be or who will be sovereign. You may think me cruel and petty. I wasn't going out of my way to harm that girl. I had an entire country on my mind. And yes, it was a cruel country where people were snatched and sold and, yes, enslaved. I did not do enough to stop that. That may be my one regret. Yes, there was a limit on divine intervention even in those days, but I always had pillow talk. I could have done more as a wife and queen to change my husband's way of keeping and gaining power with a few millennia of retrospection i declare i would not find a man by the name of Mugmadon, slaveholder to be worthy of my beloved land now do remember this the goddess is a force of birth and she is also a force of death that woman and her son both serve the will of men whether they knew it or not, they were pawns in the game of the short-lived power brokers, the foolish lads grown into even more fool-hearted men who thought to remake this land in their own image. And then, sweet storyteller, you left out the part where I commanded my sons to trick Niall by calling him into their quarrel and turning their own knives upon him. Maybe you didn't want to paint me as a would-be murderess, seeing as you brought all these people here to hear some song of a forgotten heroine, some goddess queen witch who deserves to be remembered. (laughs) Well, maybe I did order my boys to take Nile down. Maybe they did not because they were too weak. Maybe they had purer hearts than I. Maybe they believed in that oath they'd made to their younger brother. Maybe they believed those bedtime stories I told them, the stories that were actually a true account of how I met your father. Maybe they were raised in a faith so strong they never learned to think for themselves. I, my dears, have been that hag. I have been the transformed maiden who blithely offers a kiss and the friendship of my thighs to the worthy will be king. I have held the throne and all its power. I have wielded it with wisdom and fairness, and in the name of the old ways, in the name of the great mother, Danu, who cares for this land like she would care for her dearest child. And I, my dears, have always had a name. That mossy-toothed old Bessam who guarded the well? She was no sister of mine. She was sister to no one. That nameless prop they offered you? She has only ever taken breath on the page. The lads who ran the ancient O'Neill dynasty's propaganda machine dreamed her up, you see. Those boyos were never by a sacred well with my sons, but they were in the room where it happened. They conducted the backroom deals that took the throne from my worthy eldest son, Brian, and they put Niall in charge. They made up a tale after the fact to justify the way they subverted the will of the goddess. They made up a goddess to justify placing their boy on the throne to suit small-minded, greed-driven human designs. And then they dared do it in my name and invent a story of my demise as a common poisoner. I did drink a poison cup. It took me down just as it took down Crin, my beloved brother. And of course he was of the fairy folk, just as I was. I wouldn't have passed the throne on to just anyone while my Brian was off learning the ways of statecraft. Crin and I may have had a disagreement because that brother of mine did rather like his stint on the throne at Tara. The boys of my family did have it a little rough. They didn't have many chances to emerge into this world and try their hand at sovereignty. I can barely blame him. For Critten and me, it was a pact finally sealed. We had watched the men of Tara and the rest of the warring families run rampant over the old beliefs in sovereignty. We'd watched them upend the vital delicate balance that must be maintained between the gods and nature and the people who rely on the goodwill of those gods and the health of the land. We chose to return to our mother our sisters and our brothers in the realm of the she to restore our sanity and to decide how we'd emerge again to find another worthy ruler on another day and now most say we gods and goddesses have had our time we passed the mantle a long time ago i haven't dreamed of putting on my human guise for centuries we work in whispers now we distrust stories For obvious reasons but we know that we depend on stories for our very survival in my day we didn't have words like patriarchy capitalism industrialization not that i spoke english but we had men who would wrest control from the vaster unseen hands of nature and the divine We had women who went along because they trusted men to butter their bread more than they trusted their own sense with the cows. Now hear me, if you've ever met an Irish heroine, you'll know that she always has a mighty way with the cows and can lead the herds or make a miracle with the milk like you've never seen. Remember this, never trust a woman who relies on a man for all her butter. My time is Samhain that last October night you all seemed to call All Hallows' Eve. I can tell this story out of season, but I ask you to remember when the moon of the autumn again fills the sky, this. Though I hate much of what those monks say of me in their yellowy old book, I rather like the way they tell it at the close. Then on the eve of Samhain precisely, Mungen dies. So this is the death of Mungan the Banshee. Hence, Samhain is called by the rabble Mungan's Feast, for she was a witch and had magical power while she was in the flesh. Wherefore, women and the rabble make petitions to her on Samhain. <laughs> oh, the parties we would throw, those wild women and the rest of the rabble. You do know what rabble means, yes? It's the ordinary folk, those who live close to the earth and close to the mother. The rabble are those that the manufactured O'Neill dynasty feared and despised because the women and the common folk knew the truth. They knew that I was sovereignty. They knew that I was goddess made flesh. They knew that I would tend to their needs like a sacred queen devoted to her lands and her people. To celebrate my feast is to celebrate the bonds that exist between the sacred and the everyday, between the gods and the land and the people who depend upon them both. To celebrate my feast is to celebrate the great mother and all those who fight fiercely to protect her. I was a goddess. I was a queen. I still am. I will take their label of witch and make it holy because that is what women and the rabble do when we are misunderstood, accused, and betrayed. I offer my magic, all divine and human as it may be. By my magic, I will ask you to transform the story. My story, your story, poor Karen's story. Because I cannot believe she wanted to be a henchwoman to those who would tear the world from the hands of its divine caretakers and tilt creation all out of balance. I can only believe that she wanted what we all do. A place to call home where she was safe and seen and trusted and loved. And so mote it Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through Season 3 and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagoudi.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called the College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.